Chapter thirty three of the White Company. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The White Company by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter thirty three. How the army made the passage of Roncesvalles. The whole vast plain of Gascony and of Languedoc is an arid and profitless expanse in winter, save where the swift-flowing Adour and her snow-fed tributaries, the Loup, the Oloron, and the Pau, run down to the Sea of Biscay. South of the Adour, the jagged line of mountains which fringe the skyline send out long granite claws, running down into the lowlands and dividing them into gaves, or stretches of valley. Hillocks grow into hills, and hills into mountains, each range overlying its neighbour, until they soar up in the giant chain which raises its spotless and untrodden peaks, white and dazzling against the pale blue wintry sky. A quiet land is this, a land where the slow-moving Basque, with his flat biretta cap, his red sash and his hempen sandals, tills his scanty farm or drives his lean flock to their hillside pastures. It is the country of the wolf and the izard, of the brown bear and the mountain goat, a land of bare rock and of rushing water. Yet here it was that the will of a great prince had now assembled a gallant army, so that from the Adour to the passes of Navarre the barren valleys and wind-swept wastes were populous with soldiers, and loud with the shouting of orders and the neighing of horses. For the banners of war had been flung to the wind once more, and over those glistening peaks was the highway along which honour pointed in an age when men had chosen her as their guide. And now all was ready for the enterprise. From Dax to Saint-Jean-Pied-du-Port the country was mottled with the white tents of Gascon, Aquitanians and English, all eager for the advance. From all sides the free companions had trooped in, until not less than twelve thousand of these veteran troops were cantoned along the frontiers of Navarre. From England had arrived the prince's brother, the Duke of Lancaster, with four hundred knights in his train, and a strong company of archers. Above all, an heir to the throne had been born in Bordeaux, and the prince might leave his spouse with an easy mind, for all was well with mother and with child. The keys of the mountain passes still lay in the hands of the shifty and ignoble Charles of Navarre, who had chaffered and bargained, both with the English and with the Spanish, taking money from the one side to hold them open, and from the other to keep them sealed. The mallet hand of Edward, however, had shattered all the schemes and wiles of the plotter. Neither entreaty nor courtly remonstrance came from the English prince but Sir Hugh Calverley passed silently over the border with his company, and the blazing walls of the two cities of Miranda and Puente de la Rea warned the unfaithful monarch that there were other metals besides gold, and that he was dealing with a man to whom it was unsafe to lie. His price was paid, his objections silenced, and the mountain gorges lay open to the invaders. From the Feast of the Epiphany there was mustering and massing, until in the first week of February, three days after the White Company joined the army, 
the word was given for a general advance through the defile of Roncesvalles. At five, in the cold winter's morning, the bugles were blowing in the hamlet of Saint-Jean-Pied-du-Port, and by six, Sir Nigel's company, three hundred strong, were on their way for the defile, pushing swiftly in the dim light up the steep curving road. For it was the prince's order that they should be the first to pass through, and that they should remain on guard at the further end until the whole army had emerged from the mountains. Day was already breaking in the east, and the summits of the great peaks had turned rosy red, while the valleys still lay in the shadow, and they found themselves with the cliffs on either hand, and the long, rugged pass stretching away before them. Sir Nigel rode his great black war-horse at the head of his archers, dressed in full armour, with Black Simon bearing his banner behind him, while Alan, at his bridle-arm, carried his blazoned shield and his well-steeled ashen spear. A proud and happy man was the knight, and many a time he turned in his saddle to look at the long column of bowmen who swung swiftly along behind him. "'By St. Paul, Alan,' said he, "'this pass is a very perilous place.' and i would that the king of navarre had held it against us for it would have been a very honourable venture had it fallen to us to win the passage i have heard the minstrels sing of one sir roland who was slain by the infidels in these very parts if it please you my fair lord said black simon i know something of these parts for i have twice served a term with the king of navarre there is a hospice of monks yonder where you may see the roof among the trees and there it was that Sir Roland was slain. The village upon the left is Aubacieta, and I know a house therein where the right wine of Curancon is to be brought, if it would please you to quaff a morning cup. There is smoke yonder upon the right. That is the village named Les Adudes, and I know a hostel there also where the wine is of the best. It is said that the innkeeper hath a buried treasure and I doubt not, my fair lord, that if you grant me leave I could prevail upon him to tell us where he hath hid it. Nay, nay, Simon, said Sir Nigel curtly, I pray you to forget these free companion tricks. Ha! Edrickson, I see that you stare about you, and in good sooth these mountains must seem wondrous indeed to one who hath but seen Butzer or the Portsdown Hill. The broken and rugged road had wound along the crests of low hills, with wooded ridges on either side of it, over which peeped the loftier mountains, the distant peak of the south, and the vast Altabisca, which towered high above them, and cast its black shadow from left to right across the valley. From where they now stood they could look forward down a long vista of beechwoods and jagged, rock-strewn wilderness, all white with snow, to where the pass opened out upon the uplands beyond. Behind them they could still catch a glimpse of the grey plains of Gascony, and could see her rivers gleaming like coils of silver in the sunshine. As far as I could see, from among the rocky gorges and the bristles of the pinewoods, there came the quick twinkle and glitter of steel, while the wind brought with it sudden distant bursts of martial music from the great host which rolled by every road and by-path towards the narrow pass of Roncesvalles. On the cliffs on either side might also be seen the flash of arms and the waving of pennons, where the force of Navarre looked down upon the army of strangers who passed through their territories. "'By St. Paul,' said Sir Nigel, blinking up at them, "'I think that we may have much to hope for from these cavaliers, for they cluster very thickly upon our flanks.' 
password to the men, Aylward, that they unsling their bows, for I have no doubt that there are some very worthy gentlemen yonder who may give us some opportunity for honourable advancement. I hear that the prince hath the king of Navarra's hostage, said Alan, and it is said that he hath sworn to put him to death if there be any attack upon us. It was not so that war was made when good King Edward first turned his hand to it, said Sir Nigel sadly. Ah, Alan, I fear that you will never live to see such things, for the minds of men are more set upon money and gain than of old. By St. Paul, it, it was a noble sight when two great armies would draw together upon a certain day, and all who had a vow would ride forth to discharge themselves of it. What noble spear-runnings have I not seen, and even in a humble way taken part in, when cavaliers would run a course for the easing of their souls, and for the love of their ladies. Never a bad word have I for the French, for, though I have ridden twenty times up to their array, I have never yet failed to find some very gentle and worthy knight or squire, who was willing to do what he might to enable me to attempt some small feat of arms. Then, when all cavaliers had been satisfied, the two armies would come to hand-strokes, and fight right merrily until one or other had the advantage. By St. Paul, it was not our wont in those days to pay gold for the opening of passes, nor would we hold a king as hostage lest his people come to thrusts with us. In good sooth, if the war is to be carried out in such a fashion, then it is grief to me that I ever came away from Castle Twynham, for I would not have left my sweet lady had I not thought that there were deeds of arms to be done. But surely, my fair lord, said Alan, you have done some great feats of arms since we left the Lady Loring. I cannot call any to mind, answered Sir Nigel. There was the taking of the sea-rovers, and the holding of the keep against the jacks. Nay, nay, said the knight, these were not feats of arms, but mere wayside ventures and the chances of travel. By St. Paul, if it were not that these hills are oversteep for pommers, I would ride to these cavaliers of Navarre, and see if there were not some among them who would help me to take this patch from mine eye. It is a sad sight to see this very fine pass, which mine own company here could hold against an army, and yet to ride through it with as little profit as though it were the lane from my kennels to the Avon. All morning Sir Nigel rode in a very ill humour, with his company tramping behind him. It was a toilsome march, over broken ground, and through snow which came often as high as the knee, yet ere the sun had begun to sink they had reached the spot where the gorge opens out onto the uplands of Navarre, and could see the towers of Pamplona jutting up against the southern skyline. Here the company were quartered in a scattered mountain hamlet, and Alan spent the day looking down upon the swarming army which poured with gleam of spears and flaunt of standards through the narrow pass. "'Hold up, Mongar,' said Aylward, seating himself upon a boulder by his side. "'This is indeed a fine sight upon which it is good to look, and a man might go far ere he would see so many brave men and fine horses.' "'By my hilt!' Our little lord is wroth because we have come peacefully through the passes, but I will warrant him that we have fighting enow ere we turn our faces northward again. It is said that there are fourscore thousand men behind the king of Spain, with de Guesclin and all the best lancers of France, who have sworn to shed their heart's blood ere this Pedro come again to the throne. Yet our own army is a great one, said Alan. 
Nay, there are but seven and twenty thousand men. Chandos hath persuaded the prince to leave many behind, and indeed I think that he is right, for there is little food and less water in these parts for which we are bound. A man without his meat, or a horse without his fodder, is like a wet bowstring, fit for little. But voila, mon petit, here comes Chandos with his company, and there is many a pencil and banderole among yonder squadrons, which show that the best blood of England is riding under his banners. Whilst Aylward had been speaking, a strong column of archers had defiled through the pass beneath them. They were followed by a banner-bearer, who held high the scarlet wedge upon a silver field, which proclaimed the presence of the famous warrior. He rode himself within a spear's length of his standard, clad from neck to foot in steel, but draped in the long linen gowl or parement which was destined to be the cause of his death. His plumed helmet was carried behind him by his body-squire, and his head was covered by a small purple cap, from under which his snow-white hair curled downwards to his shoulders. With his long beak-like nose, and his single gleaming eye, which shone brightly from under a thick tuft of grizzled brow, he seemed to Alan to have something of the look of some fierce old bird of prey. For a moment he smiled, as his eye lit upon the banner of the five roses waving from the hamlet, but his course lay for Pampluna, and he rode on after the archers. Close at his heels came sixteen squires, all chosen from the highest families, and behind them rode twelve hundred English knights, with gleam of steel and tossing of plumes, their harness jingling, their long straight swords clanking against their stirrup-irons, and a beat of their chargers' hooves like the low deep roar of the sea upon the shore. Behind them marched six hundred Cheshire and Lancashire archers, bearing the badge of the Audleys, followed by the famous Lord Audley himself, with the four valiant squires, Dutton of Dutton, Delves of Doddington, Fowlhurst of Crewe, and Hawkstone of Wayne Hill, who had all won such glory at Poitiers. Two hundred heavily armed cavalry rode behind the Audley standard, while close at their heels came the Duke of Lancaster, with glittering train, heralds tabarded with the royal arms, riding three deep upon cream-coloured chargers in front of him. On either side of the young prince rode the two seneschals of Aquitaine, Sir Giscard d'Angle and Sir Stephen Cossington, the one bearing the banner of the province, and the other that of St. George. Away behind him, as far as I could reach, rolled the far-stretching, unbroken river of steel. Rank after rank, and column after column, with waving of plumes, glitter of arms, tossing of guidon, and flash and flutter of countless armorial devices. All day Alan looked down upon the changing scene, and all day the old bowman stood by his elbow, pointing out the crests of famous warriors and the arms of noble houses. Here were the gold mullets of the Packingtons, the sable and ermine of the Mackworths, the scarlet bars of the Wakes, the gold and blue of the Grovesners, the cinquefoil of the Cliftons, the annulets of the Musgraves, the silver pinions of the Beauchamp, the crosses of the Molyneux, the bloody chevron of the Woodhouses, the red and silver of the Worsleys, the swords of the Clarks, the boar's heads of the Lucys, the crescents of the Boyntons, and the wolf and dagger of the Lipscombs. So, 
through the sunny winter day the chivalry of england poured down through the dark pass of roncesvalles to the plains of spain it was on a monday that the duke of lancaster's division passed safely through the pyrenees on the tuesday there was a bitter frost and the ground rung like iron beneath the feet of the horses yet ere evening the prince himself with the main battle of his army, had passed the gorge and united with his vanguard at Pampeluna. With him rode the king of Majorca, the hostage king of Navarre, and the fierce Don Pedro of Spain, whose pale blue eyes gleamed with a sinister light as they rested once more upon the distant peaks of the land which had disowned him. Under the royal banners rode many a bold Gascon baron, and many a hot-blooded islander, here were the high stewards of Aquitaine, of Saintorge, of La Rochelle, of Quercy, of Limousin, of Agenois, of Pitou, and of Bigorre, with the banners and musters of their provinces. Here also were the valiant Earl of Angus, Sir Thomas Bannister, with his garter over his grieve, Sir Neil Loring, the second cousin to Sir Nigel, and a long column of Welsh footmen who marched under the red banner of Merlin. From dawn to sundown the long train wound through the pass, their breath reeking up upon the frosty air like the steam from a cauldron. The weather was less keen upon the Wednesday, and the rear-guard made good their passage, with the bombards and the wagon-train. Free companions and Gascons made up this portion of the army to the number of ten thousand men. The fierce Sir Hugh Calverley, with his yellow mane, and the rugged Sir Robert Knowles, with their war-hardened and veteran companies of English bowmen, headed the long column, while behind them came the turbulent bands of the bastard of Bretoy, Nandon de Bajeron, One-Eyed Camus, Black Ortigno, La Nuit, and others whose very names seemed to smack of hard hands and ruthless deeds. With them also were the pick of the Gascon chivalry, the old Duc d'Armagnac, his nephew Lord d'Albret, brooding and scowling over his wrongs, the giant Oliver de Clisson, the Captal de Buch, pink of knighthood, the sprightly Sir Perdugas d'Albray, the red-bearded Lord d'Espar, and a long train of needy and grasping border nobles, with long pedigrees and short purses, who had come down from their hillside strongholds, all hungering for the spoils and the ransoms of Spain. By the Thursday morning the whole army was encamped in the Vale of Pampeluna, and the prince had called his council to meet him in the old palace of the ancient city of Navarre. End of chapter 33